You're listening to Down to a Science, a LANL podcast series. Every second, about 100 trillion subatomic particles called neutrinos pass through your body. Neutrinos are the most abundant particles in the universe, but despite how common they are, they're incredibly difficult to detect. Even though trillions of neutrinos are passing through you all of the time, you'll never feel them and there's a good chance that not a single one will actually interact with you in your lifetime. That's partly what makes the neutrinos so hard to find. But why don't they interact with matter? What makes the most abundant particle in the universe nearly impossible to detect? And more importantly, how are we going to find them? I'm your host, Nick Niegomir, and today on Down to a Science, we're talking with Sojanya Galapani, a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, about neutrinos and how researchers are working on a massive experiment to learn more about the elusive particles. So, Janya, let's start with a little background for our listeners. What is a neutrino? Yeah, neutrinos are one of the fundamental particles that make up this universe. Um, They're, in fact, the second most abundant particles of the universe after photons, which are the light particles. Um, They're very pervasive and, in fact, everywhere. Um, Almost everything emits neutrinos. Um, Sun, for example emits a lots of neutrinos. We learned about sun, in fact, by studying neutrinos, how it works. Um, neutron stars, black holes, um, you know, stars out there, um, supernovae, which is when a star core collapses and explodes, 99% of the energy is carried by neutrinos. Um, you know, these are some of the big, big things out there that emit neutrinos, but there's also small things that emit neutrinos. Nucleus, for example, emits neutrinos. Even bananas uh, that we see every day emits neutrinos. Um, In fact, one million neutrinos per day, per second. So, and and billions of them are passing through us right now. Uh, So we're getting neutrino tanned just sitting in our offices. And if they're everywhere, why are they so difficult to find? You will, you will hear commonly when people talk about neutrinos, other physicists in other articles, uh, the, the words used are ghostly, elusive, uh, peculiar, weird. <laughs> that tells you how hard it is to find these neutrinos. And there's, there's many reasons for this. Um, I'll point out a couple of properties that make them, you know, why we call them ghostly. Uh, the one property is that they're very weakly interacting, um, underlined very weakly here. And I can give you a couple of examples for this. Uh, if you take a neutrino coming from sun, for example, it's a million electron volts, which we call the MeV energy level neutrino. Um, and if one wants to stop this neutrino and make it interact, um, you would need almost um, a light year of lead, uh, lead the, the metal lead. Um, we know a light year is what, six trillion miles roughly, and lead is one of the densest material out there, just to give you a sense of how hard it is to make them sociable. You know, they don't like interacting with matter particles. Um, and for comparison, I can tell you, if you take a proton, for that's in the nucleus, if you take a proton that has an energy, let's say a thousand times more than a neutrino coming from the sun, to stop that proton, you only need like a few centimeters of lead. Just as a comparison, you know, a few centimeters to, you know, needing trillions of miles of uh, uh, lead to stop it. That's one 
a property that makes it very difficult to make them interact and study them. The other property is uh, goes back to, you know, um, how neutrinos can morph into different types. Before that, let me say neutrinos, like like ice cream, comes in uh, different flavors or types. Um, these are their electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos, and tau neutrinos. And um, when they travel long distances, they they can um, oscillate or change into different types. So what would start as a muon neutrino, let's say, after it travels a few hundred kilometers, may not be detected as a muon neutrino. It could have become an electron neutrino. This phenomena we call neutrino oscillations. It's, it's a very interesting quantum mechanical phenomena that allows neutrinos to do this. Um, so you can imagine, you know, this was a big puzzle when we did not know neutrinos could oscillate. Um, so, you know, uh, some time ago, uh, scientists wanted to measure the, you know, how many neutrinos sun was emitting. Um, so they built an experiment um, in, in South Dakota, actually. It's called the Homestake Experiment. Uh, it's, it's called the infamous Homestake Experiment, also referred to as neutrino, neutrino burglar at the time. And the reason for that is when, the, when scientists tried to measure how many neutrinos were coming from sun to earth, what they measured was, two, was only two-thirds of what one would expect. So if you were to take a pen and paper and just calculate, oh, you know, uh, given the circumference of the sun and the reactions, this is what we expect. They weren't measuring, um, you know, what, what they had put on the paper. We didn't know why, why this was happening, you know, and we started questioning, you know, is the theory wrong? Is the experiment wrong or both wrong? You know, how could something disappear? Right, um, and later we found out this this was because of neutrino neutrinos were oscillating. So neutrinos, um, electron neutrinos that were emitted from sun as they reached Earth, they have turned into tau or muon neutrinos. And since we were only measuring one flavor, um, you know, we thought neutrinos were disappearing. And you know, there are many experiments after that that. Uh, you know, discovered neutrino oscillations. In fact, the 2015 Nobel Prize uh, was for the discovery of, of this uh, uh, that was given. Yeah, uh, neutrinos are also neutral, which means they don't have charge. Uh, they have mass, but, but very, very tiny. You know, combined, all this makes it very difficult to detect neutrinos. To find these elusive particles, researchers from dozens of countries are designing a new experiment the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE, which sets out to detect neutrino and anti-neutrino particles, which are challenging to find in nature. DUNE will consist of a proton beam and two neutrino detectors, one at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Illinois, and a second, much larger detector at the Sanford Underground Research Facility, or SURF, in South Dakota, 800 miles away from Fermi. The second detector will be nearly a mile underground. Located at the former Homestake gold mine, SURF provides important depth and rock stability, a near-perfect environment for experiments that need to escape the constant bombardment of cosmic radiation, which can interfere with the detection of rare physics events. Until its closure in 2002, Homestake was the largest and deepest gold mine in North America, producing approximately 41 million ounces of gold in its 126-year lifetime. So Janya, could you tell us about Dune and how it works? 
So before I talk about June, I'll just point out that, you know, I just said how neutrino oscillations make it really hard to detect neutrinos. But at the same time, now that we have figured out that they oscillate and we can catch them, uh, neutrino oscillations are also our probes um, to try to answer the questions in the universe. And the property of neutrinos that they're very weakly interacting you know, that's also great because there are secret messengers coming from the universe. Um, so Dune is an experiment that, that also used neutrino oscillations as its probe to, an, an, to answer some of the fundamental questions out there. So one burning question we have right now is, you know, why do we live in a matter-dominated universe? Uh, in other words, you know, how did we come into existence? Um, and we'll talk more about that a little bit, but that's the main mission of DUNE. Um, so DUNE stands for Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment. Not very creative. It's basically what it says. <laughs> um, it falls under, under the category called a long baseline neutrino experiment. Uh, baseline is a jargon. What it means is uh, the distance between a neutrino source and the detector and how far away that detector is. Um, and in a long baseline experiment, you, 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 not have, you don't have just one detector, you have two detectors. You have a detector, uh, a near detector that's very close to the neutrino beam, and then you have a far detector that's thousands of kilometers away. Um, so Dune has uh, a near detector at Fermilab, which is where the neutrino beam will be produced. And then it has a far detector that's 800 kilometers away in Leeds, South Dakota. The far detector will be built um, a mile underground in the Sanford Underground Research Facility. Um, and the, the interesting and adventurous thing about Dune is that the far detector, it's not built in one piece, it's built in four pieces. And each piece is roughly the size of a football stadium. So you're, you're trying to build four football stadiums in you know, one mile underground. So it's, it's just not building one ship in a bottle, it's building four ships in a bottle. Just to, uh, so it's very challenging, it's exciting at the same time. Um, of course, doing this, you know, the detector scale is unprecedented. June is a, a you know, mega project. It's an international collaboration involving you know, more than 1,200 people all around the world. Um, and uh, LANL has a huge footprint on this international project. Uh, we are involved in many areas. Um, I'll, I'll give some, some examples. One is calibration, so developing calibration technologies uh, to calibrate a detector that, that has a scale unprecedented so far. Uh, it will be the largest liquid argon neutrino detector we will ever build. So that tells you how challenging it is to instrument anything uh, with Dune. Um, another challenge with Dune is that we use liquid argon, uh, as I mentioned before, as our nuclear target. And liquid argon, it's, it's great for what we want to do, but it's also a cryogenic liquid. Um, which means that we have to maintain liquid argon at negative 180 degrees Celsius or so. And we have to instrument everything in these ultra cold environments. Um, so we're involved in calibration. We're also involved in cryogenic instrumentation. You know, all these um, instruments will ensure that, you know, Dune is working well. We can calibrate the detector, make sure that things are uniform within the detector uh, and that we can read out particle signals and do the science we want to do. 
Uh, we're also involved in understanding how different particles interact with argon. Um, you know, some examples are how protons and neutrons interact with argon. And understanding this is important because, you know, when neutrinos come and interact with argon um, in Dune, we need to know how those interactions will look like. What are the byproducts? So we're also involved in uh, making some of those measurements. Because of the laboratory's legacy in particle physics, Los Alamos is uniquely suited to support Dune in these areas. There's a lot of... Uh, um, legacy and history Lanel has in neutrino physics, I mentioned. Um, you know, the, the team of neutrino physicists here, we have been, been involved in neutrino experiments uh, from, you know, for, uh, for decades now. Um, so there are many questions we're exploring with neutrinos. One of the questions is, um, you know, we know there's three types of neutrinos now, um, but there's been many tantalizing uh, hints and evidence we have seen in recent experiments that's pointing to the possibility of more flavors of neutrinos. So there could be a fourth type of a neutrino or a fifth type, which could become a prime candidate for the dark matter uh, puzzle. Um, in fact, that whole thing stirred up with an experiment at Lanel. It's called the LSND experiment um, that happened. Um, and the anomalous results from that experiment uh, you know, started the community to wonder, are there more types of neutrinos? And from there, we, we have Miniboon uh, trying to understand that anomaly. Uh, you know, Miniboon was built at Fermilab. And then there's a follow-up on Miniboon, which is now Microboon and the short baseline neutrino program. Um, this is to say that, you know, uh, we have been involved in neutrinos for, for, for a long time, and there's a lot of expertise on all fronts that Lanel brings uh, to the neutrino physics and to the world community. Um, in Dune, um, you know, our expertise in instrumentation, uh, the oscillation physics, and understanding how particles interact with dense nuclei, all that collectively uh, put us in an excellent position to pursue this physics. I'll also add that the, you know, LANL is a, uh, is a world-class national lab. Uh, we have a lot of facilities and technologies and technical expertise here um, that has uh, you know, allowed us to take on big projects for June and demonstrate success through prototyping. And what do we want to learn from the experiment? One interesting thing I'll point out is in particle physics experiments in general, uh, you're using particles as a probe to understand something. You're not necessarily learning something about the particle itself, but you use it as, as a way to learn about other things. You know? The interesting thing with neutrinos is that you all our experiments are actually built to understand more about neutrinos themselves, but that automatically sheds light on the questions and the mysteries in the universe. So, so that's a very, very interesting thing about neutrinos. I have always felt since I started working on neutrinos. Um, so there, there's a lot we can learn from neutrinos uh, by studying them. Uh, I, I touched on this before, which is the matter-antimatter asymmetry. That's a burning question that we've been trying to understand for, for decades now. Um, and before I get into that, I can briefly mention what matter is and what antimatter is. Um, so matter is, uh, you know, matter and antimatter has this 
same mass, matter particles and antimatter particles, but they have opposite charge and spatial symmetry. For example, electron is matter. Um, Anti-electron, uh, which we call positron, is antimatter. So similarly, for every neutrino, there is also an anti-neutrino. Um, so the, you know, according to the Big Bang theory, when the universe was formed, we, you know, there's equal amounts of matter and antimatter, and you know, one would expect that they both cancelled each other out or annihilated, and there would just be light or just energy. And thankfully, that did not happen. We're here, uh, and we don't know what what happened in the early universe that caused this imbalance, that tipped the scales. You know, why did matter survive more, much more than antimatter? And roughly, what we are talking about is for every pair of matter antimatter particle, one matter particle. Uh, survived. Sorry, one for every one billion pair of matter and antimatter particles, one matter particle survived. So there's only a little bit of matter that survived, but that was enough to create what we see today, you, me, and this universe we are in. Um, we have looked to answer this question. Uh, we have looked to answer this question in many places, many particles, such as quarks. But there is not nearly enough we found that could explain the level of asymmetry that we're seeing today. Um, we need many more magnitudes more to, to, to understand this. The one place we haven't looked is neutrinos. And that's where Dune comes in. Um, Dune is designed, its main mission is understanding this question and shedding light on this. So it's designed to maximize its sensitivity uh, to answer this question. And the way we're going to do this in June is we're going to first send uh, muon neutrinos from Fermilab to South Dakota, which is 800 miles away. And then we're going to study as, in, as the muon neutrinos travel these 800 miles and oscillate to electron neutrinos, you know, how their oscillation probabilities look like. And then we're going to switch the polarity at Fermilab and send um, muon antineutrinos um, to South Dakota. And then we're going to see how those antiparticles oscillate and how the flavor profile looks like, how their oscillations look like. And then we compare both. And that will give us an insight into, you know, how fundamentally different neutrinos and antineutrinos are and their oscillations are. And based on that, we should be able to shed light on this question. So that's one question neutrinos um, um, will help us through Dune to understand. Uh, we're, we'll also uh, use Dune to understand which neutrino is the lightest or which neutrino is the heaviest. We know neutrinos have mass. We don't know their absolute masses. We don't know which neutrino you know, is the lightest of the three flavors. But Dune will also help us answer that question. Um, Dune's physics is actually much rich than what I have just mentioned. These are just the two things that Dune will look into. Uh, but it, it can also detect supernovae. The last supernovae we detected is in 1987. Uh, so the world is desperately waiting for a supernovae, I would say, especially as a Dune collaborator, because this is the first time we're building you know, a huge detector, so we could actually detect hundreds of supernovae events when they happen. So we'll have a unique and great sensitivity to further understand how supernovae happens, 
um, how things happen in, in space, other explosions like this. Uh, we'll also, we can also study neutrinos from sun. We refer to that as solar neutrinos. We can study neutrinos from atmosphere. So it's a very broad and rich program. So Dune, once it starts, you know, we're looking at Dune running for two or three decades. And, you know, th there's a lot of discovery potential all along its operation and data taking. So we'll have a lot of exciting physics that will come out of Dune. What researchers learn from Dune has the potential to transform the understanding of neutrinos and their role in the universe and change the way we understand things in a big way. Yeah, I would say so many ways. Uh, I, in terms of science, if we do discover that neutrinos are at the core of this antimatter asymmetry puzzle, it will change the way we've been thinking about universe. It will change our, our fundamental understanding and it will revolutionize physics. And that has many implications, not just particle physics, you know, cosmology, our understanding of how the universe formed, how it's evolving, um, all those things. Uh, that's one thing, you know, if we, you know, I mentioned before that there could be more types of neutrinos and these additional types could be candidates uh, for what makes up the dark matter, which is also a question that we don't have an answer to. And that again opens up new chapter chapter in physics. Um, if we learn about supernovae, uh, if, if supernovae were to occur during Dune's lifetime, and hopefully it does, uh, we learn a lot more about supernovae and star collapses and, and what's happening out there. So, you know, there are many ways uh, neutrinos and Dune can fundamentally impact the science that we know today and revolutionize it. Um, coming to how, you know, what are the implications for for you know, humankind and the society, um, you know, particle physics, um, this experiment, Dune, microbone, these are all curiosity-driven um, projects in science. Uh, but then, like I just mentioned, you know, we're also working at the cusp of technological advances when we work on our experiments. So we're pushing boundaries. Um, and that, that finds its way into the society in many ways. I can give a few examples. The World Wide Web, uh, which is what we call internet, this was actually invented because particle physicists wanted to share the data worldwide because we are international collaborations and we take data at one place and that needs to go to you know, multiple countries across the world. And that's how internet was discovered and was invented and we know now you know, uh, what role that plays in our society today. You know, X-ray imaging, radiation techniques, these are all offshoots of particle physics technology that we know are commonly used in medical physics now. So it is true um, that, you know, it may take a decade, for example, before you see a particle physics technology transferred into industry or society. Um, but it does happen, and if we, if we have witnessed anything in the past, you know, decades is that this has happened consistently, and, you know, I'm sure it will continue to do so. Um, one other example I'll point out when we talk about neutrinos and the benefits to humankind is um, neutrinos, uh, you know, we talked how weakly interacting they are, and they can travel really long distances without interacting. And that's a great thing when you think about doing non-proliferation science towards peace and monitoring nuclear activity that's not registered. Uh, nuclear reactors, I mentioned before, actually produce astronomical 
amounts of neutrinos on Earth. Um, so if you have a nuclear reactor somewhere, you can see neutrinos coming out of it. And because they don't interact and just pass through, you can see them from thousands of kilometers away. So assume you have an unregistered nuclear activity somewhere on one side of the ocean. You can have, if you have a detector on the other side of the ocean, you can actually detect that activity. So there is a very active research area now, uh, which is trying to use neutrinos uh, to do non-proliferation science. And this is, you know, this is an application to national security and global peace, but we have been detecting neutrinos from nuclear reactors for decades now. Down to a Science is produced by Los Alamos National Laboratory. Your host, Nick Yegomir. Special thanks to our guest, Sojanya Galapini. Find out more about the laboratory and its mission at www.lanl.gov.